Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. What would $20 a barrel oil look like? What would it do to companies around the world? Well, Bill Smead is the chief executive officer and the chief investment officer of Smead Capital Management, helping to manage more than $2.2 billion in customer assets based in Seattle. And he's here to tell us more. Bill, always a pleasure. So $20 a barrel. Go ahead. Give us how we get there. And then what does the world look like if $20 a barrel is really real? Well, the first thing to understand that that $20 barrel number is in 2014 dollars. Uh, so uh, as the years go by, uh, we're using constant dollars to look back at 160 years of participation in, 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 of oil in, in mainstream economies. And it is spent about 70% of the time during the last 160 years around $20 a barrel adjusted for 2014 prices. Now, we know that it's been as high as 145 in 2008 in terms of 2008 prices, and we know that it, it, it has been all over the place in those 160 years. But using a constant dollar, 2014, most of the time it's spent around 20, and when it goes wild, uh, it, it, it gets around 110 or 120 adjusted for 2014 prices, which ironically is where we were in 2014 at about $115 a barrel. Uh, Bill, this is a really compelling point to me, especially because last year we were talking about deflation. This year we're talking about reflation, and a lot of it boils down to the price of oil. It's giving people the impression uh, and, and the reality that prices are increasing. Do you think that if oil prices were to fall back down to $20 a barrel, people would start talking about deflation again? Well, sure. Uh, of, of course they would. I think, you know, we're looking at very long duration, you know, 10-year oriented things. And, and, and so a way to look at this is in the next year, something could cause oil to go higher in the next year. But if you look at the 160-year chart, every one of those rallies in, in, in the oil bear markets, which by the way, oil has spent 75% of the time in bear markets and only 25% of the time in, in bull markets, if you look back at 160 years. So the thing I noticed, and the easy way for me to think about this, is what is the investor sentiment? I've never seen so many investors, both professional and individual investors, so anxious to see something work, right? Everyone, oh gosh, I, oil stocks are cheap from historical basis. Look at all the oil they've got in the ground, yada, 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 while the people in Los Angeles are driving their, their uh, hybrid and electric cars, and, and, and uh, you, you know, they faced real stark you know, technology realities. It's funny. The, the S&P loves technology, and the only place they don't trust technology is in the oil market. Expand on that, because you've talked about this in the past, and it has been verified that we are now pumping the same amount of oil out of the ground in the United States through the operation of fracking and other techniques, but with many fewer rigs. Well, well yes, and that's because, the, 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 remember, the, the, the rig count and that kind of stuff has to do with getting it up and going. Uh, you know, it's like a spaceship. You blast off, and then once you get into outer space, you're on momentum. 
the same thing with, with drilling wells. Once the well's drilled, right, then, then all you do is have that thing pumping it out at the top. So don't confuse those, those two things, right? You, that, that is the eagerness on the part of people to uh, poke new holes in the ground. And we just went through a five- to ten-year era where every Tom, Dick, and Harry around the world was poking holes in the ground. I can remember being in London five years ago or four years ago, and the, the, you know, the, the, the London newspaper was talking about fracking in northern England. It's like if they're fracking in northern England, they might as well be fracking in California because there aren't any places left to poke holes in the ground. All right, Phil. <laughs> I, like, I like that expression. Uh, but what does this mean going forward for your investments? Because if you have $20 a barrel of oil, uh, at some point in the future, it doesn't really necessarily guide you right now. What should people be doing to prepare for the potential for this price swoon? Well, that's a great question because, uh, you know, we're, we're bottom-up stock pickers. And the thing that we notice as, as an overlay, the most important overlay is just the sheer demographic movement that will occur in the United States over the next 15 years. We're going to become a society dominated by 35 to 44-year-old people that have two kids on average. So what it means is it would be extremely favorable over a 10-year period if you're forming a lot of households and these households get formed in a place they can afford to raise a family that, that, the, that gasoline prices would be moderate, right? In other words, if, if, if gas prices just stay around 2 or 250 uh, a gallon around the country during the next 10 years, that would be very favorable on this booming number of 35 to 44-year-olds. So household formation is, is very bullish. If, if commodity prices don't go wild, it's very favorable for that. Secondly, in the S&P 500, the, the, the market is completely infatuated with technology stocks, and technology stocks make up, we count Amazon and Netflix in technology, so about 23 24% of the index. The only time that's ever been bigger was in 98 and 99, and that was a disaster. For example, in 1990, uh, uh, the technology sector was 7% of the S&P. And by the way, Microsoft was a big-time glamour stock already by, by 1990. So, so the, 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 the markets here are in this weird conundrum where professionals are super bullish, including bullish. The value guys are just bullish as all get out on oil. And then the growth guys are just as bullish as all get out on technology. And John Maynard Keynes uh, uh, says that uh, victory, security, and success go to the minority and never to the majority. So uh, you, you got to kind of pick your way. So through go this. ahead and pick your way through this. Give us the detail. Give us some names. Well, well, first of all, we like the home builders. So we own NVR and uh, uh, we own Lennar. And uh, the, the S&P has 0.13% of the index in home builders. Uh, at, at just as an example, they've got 24% in, in tech, and they've got 0.13%. So if home builders do well the next 10 years as these people age, uh, the S&P is going to make no money from it or hardly any money from it. We, we, we like the things that the market just hates. Uh, it, we're gently tiptoeing around beginning to buy in, in the anti-Amazon world, right? In other words, you know, which of the retailers are going to survive? Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, we own Nordstrom, and we think they have a future once people settle in on whatever pattern there is, and they get over this 
fascination with buying something online and having it delivered, you know, once that gets to be five, six, seven years old, it's not going to be quite as exciting as it is uh, right now. And then lastly, there's this innate fear that the wonderful economics in healthcare are just going to implode. And, and so, you know, we still like, we, we, you know, we like the pharmaceuticals, we like the Amgens, and, and very dangerously have been wading our way into Express Scripts because that seems to be, you know, the most hated stock uh, uh, in America lately. Thank you so much. Bill Smead, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer at Smead Capital Management, which oversees $2.2 billion. It's based in Seattle. Well, you know, Lisa Bromitz, we've been talking about a U.S. border tax. And, of course, one of the industries that has been highlighted by President Trump in regards to a border tax is the automobile industry. And we've got Chris Ryder. He is our European transports editor joining us from Berlin to tell us a little bit more. And he's got some additional info because of a new study that was just completed. And uh, it has some uh, rather uh, useful uh, facts, or at least uh, proposed facts, uh, about the cost of uh, this tax. Chris, great to have you with us as, as always. Just detail exactly who put the study together and what are some of their most important findings? Yeah, well, the um, the study was put together by a consulting firm um, based out of Munich, um, pretty well connected and respected within the auto industry. It's called Roland Berger. Um, and so their, their findings basically say that the backlash for the border tax would do more harm than good, essentially. I mean, the, the headline figure is that, um, that across the board that um, U.S. consumers can kind of expect costs of vehicles to rise by about $3,300 per vehicle. Um, and that, you know, that's the cost of the vehicles, you know, for the, for the industry itself. And so, you know, the impact of the industry trying to, trying to absorb those costs and pass on some of it to consumers, um, you know, could push the, whole, the entire industry into, um, into losses. So, Chris, this is a pretty dire warning, basically saying that every auto company in the world will suffer Mm -hmm. uh, if these proposals are put into effect. Can we take a look at the actual agency providing the study data? I mean, are they normally do they normally come from a certain place when they put this out? And and what was sort of their motivation behind uh, doing this study now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a fair question because, I mean, Roland Berger, um, they're well-connected in Germany. They're, like, very well-respected. But they also, because in Germany, they're also pretty close to the German automakers, um, to be sure. And so, I mean, you're getting, like, a view of the world, like, based on sort of the the European auto industry, the German automakers, which are, you know, even according to their own this study, is that um, that they'll be hit the most, that the cost to the European automakers um, is going to be $6,400 per vehicle, whereas the Detroit automakers obviously hit a lot less, like the big three in Detroit, um, just by $1,500. So you see that, like, sort of a European skew here a bit in the study that, you know, they're trying to, like, head off, you know, um, this sort of impact on their automakers there. Right. So, Chris, somebody could argue, well, you know, if they're pretty closely tied to the German automakers, they're going to try to paint this proposal as catastrophic for the entire industry around the world, Mm. including the United States. Uh, Have there been other studies done that edify some of their claims uh, that are done uh, away from this potential, I don't want to say bias, but this potential Mm. leaning? 
Um, well, I think like the, everybody's got an opinion about something like this, you know, so it depends on what kind of, you know, what side of the camp you're on. I mean, the other side will say that um, that the tax incentives, um, lower tax rates, you know, more consumer power will eventually, you know, give consumers like more ability to spend money, you know, that's the other side of the coin. And that, um, you know, that it's, it's supposed to create manufacturing jobs, encourage more manufacturing within the U.S. to avoid these kinds of taxes, to lower the costs. Um, so that, that, that's the argument, you know, that's the other side of the argument. So, um, you know, it kind of depends on which side of the camp you want, you want to, um, you, you prefer, you know, and, and, and to, to what kind of credence you're going to give a study like this. Chris, I was trying to find out the number of automobiles produced in the United States by foreign-owned or headquartered automobile companies. It is significant. If you have a 17 million annual run rate, let's say that's just the number of automobiles sold, I guess, in the United States mm. uh, in 2016. If we stay on that trajectory, is there any insight? into what might happen to those operations in the U.S. because uh, whether it's Honda or Mercedes or BMW, I mean, the list goes on and on. I think Honda, in fact, actually produces mm. more automobiles in the United States than it does in Japan. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the problem is essentially like about whether there's going to be like a boon in U.S. Um, auto manufacturing as a result of this, as a result of the... Um, um, a border tax or any kind of restrictions is that there's really no no growth in the U.S. market anymore. I mean, it's like where we're at now at 17 million is basically the cap. You know, it's basically peaked. And so you can't, you know, I, I mean, as you know... So the industry like, is doing well already. It doesn't need a lot of extra help from for a border tax. Well, right. You know, and there's certain there's certain rationales in that, like, this, like the low-cost vehicles, like, just can't be made, like, you know, at like U.S. labor rates, you know, they're made someplace else. And also the interconnection of the entire auto industry where these parts come from all around the globe and that maybe get assembled in the U.S. or maybe U.S. parts get assembled in Mexico or wherever, that it's so interconnected that like just putting a border up in one place doesn't really solve the problem because it just, it just redistributes the cost. Chris Ryder, I really appreciate your uh, joining us right now to talk about this because it is clearly a huge concern for automakers around the world to the fact that people are actually... Uh, creating these studies and coming up with estimates is telling in and of itself. Chris Ryder, European Transports Editor uh, for Bloomberg News, speaking with us from Berlin. We have heard uh, a lot about the wall that the U.S. is ostensibly going to build on the border with Mexico, but we are just now getting some details about what it may look like. On February 24th, there was a pre-solicitation notice posted on the Federal Business Opportunities website, and responses have poured in from many, including Bill Sandbrook, CEO of U.S. Concrete, who joins us now uh, from Euless, Texas. Bill, uh, first of all, can you just give us a sense of where this project is in terms of the planning stages and the details that are coming out. Sure, Lisa. Good morning. The, uh, as you said, the initial solicitation uh, was posted on February 24th, and subsequently in the last couple of days, there's been some modifications to it uh, requesting con concept conceptual designs for 30 feet high concrete wall segments uh, and those designs have to be submitted by March 20th. Uh, out of those designs, there will be 
uh, prototypes selected, and then final bidding with pricing needs to be received by May 3rd. What would be the estimated time to complete such a barrier? Well, the entire, the entire barrier is yet to be seen how much of uh, that very long border is going to be concrete because the solicitation was very explicit that there would be other materials also um, providing some of that border protection, including fencing, some redundancy of electronic monitoring. And obviously there's uh, large bodies of, of water and rivers and, and mountains. So it's very difficult to say, you know, how long an entire wall structure or wall barrier would take to build. Uh, Bill, do you have a sense of what the process is from here? I mean, yes, uh, the government is actively soliciting uh, proposals from businesses and prices that a potential project would cost. But do you have a sense of what would be required on the government's side to get something like this done from a budget perspective as well as uh, even the plan perspective? Well, the budget perspective, I think uh, the administration and members of Congress and Senate uh, have, have to work on the funding mechanism, but all along they said that's not going to be an obstacle. So I'm confident that money will be procured from some source or, or reshuffled around within the, the current existing budget. Um, as far as the government process, there's going to have to be analysis of these prototypes by, by government procurement people, selection of the prototypes, uh, republish what the actual bid documents are going to look like so people know exactly what they're bidding. And then there's going to have to be an analysis of those bids that come in. As far as business, uh, there, as you said, there's been a lot of interest in the solicitation, both from contractors who would actually build the structure to material suppliers like myself who would be working with subcontractors or the general contractors, giving pricing for various prototypes and various amounts of our material in various remote parts of the country so that a, a qualified bid could be submitted. Uh, Bill, I, I got to say, you know, I, I appreciate your work because I saw some of your guys at work yesterday at LaGuardia Airport. I know that that's just one of the many contracts that you have. Maybe you could give people a little bit of detail about the the importance of the New York metropolitan region as a market, because you've also made some acquisitions here and high-profile projects, residential and so on. And then also take us out to uh, what you're doing with Google uh, and your operations on the West Coast in uh, California. Sure. Thank you. Both of those areas are very, very important to U.S. concrete. They're, they both have very vibrant underlying economies and very, very vibrant uh, construction dynamics existing in in both of those metro areas. As you said, we are doing uh, the LaGuardia Airport right now. We made a series of acquisitions over the last two years. and We're the largest manufacturer of concrete in the five boroughs. We have 17 concrete plants and over 400 mixer trucks in the five boroughs in any given day. And we're very bullish about New York because the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey's 10-year planning uh, document came out recently with significant, significant infrastructure spend within that document. In California, we do very large work. We've done uh, the 49ers Stadium in Santa Clara. We've done the Oakland Bay Bridge. And we have been successful in getting the procurement for the, for the Google complex, which is over 100,000 yards of concrete. And uh, it's a testament to our, to our teams, especially in California, the, with the complexity of the designs for, and specifications that a, a forward-thinking company like Google would have for their campus. And we're able to supply that, that very specialized concrete. 
Uh, Bill, I want to talk about the supply of workers. Uh, if there is this development of a wall on the border with Mexico, will you be able to find sufficient workers? And are you able to find sufficient workers as is right now for your current projects? It's a very interesting question, and we work on this all the time. Depending on how busy the underlying economy is, our our major um, employment numbers are, exist within our uh, ready-mix truck drivers. They have to be skilled. They have to have a, some credentials with a commercial driver's license. And it is a, a tight market in, uh, in Texas right now, specifically in the Dallas Metroplex. The oil fields are a little bit slower. The Eagle Ford, which is in South Texas, and the uh, – Demand, the labor demand isn't as significant as it is in Dallas. We have to work on it every day, and we would have to be very creative in how we procure truck drivers and make sure that they have uh, the ability to live and work in some remote areas uh, of the country going forward. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, Bill Sandbrook is the chief executive of U.S. Concrete. Treasuries in the U.S. are down for a 12th straight day. That is the longest stretch since 2012. For more perspective on this, uh, I want to bring in Tom Tucci, head of U.S. Treasury Trading at CIBC World Markets Corp. And first, I want to start with just the magnitude of the move. It is not that huge. It's not like the losses are so significant. And yet it's really the momentum that we're seeing with yields going higher and bond values going lower. What do you make of that? Well, I think the the pace of the sell-off has been slow because it's been very well advertised that the Fed is going to be raising rates uh, most likely in March. That's 100% priced in. Um, and positioning is very well set up for that. So you, it's not like the market's being caught off guard, and I think that's the reason why you haven't seen an acceleration or a repricing of the market to much higher yields. As time goes on and we unfold some more information, then the market has the ability to price in more tightenings, uh, fiscal policy and the like, and that could move rates higher. Well, Tom, you know, I was speaking with somebody this morning who said that a lot of this is simply uh, a symptom of the increasing influence of algorithmic traders in treasuries, that there is this momentum trade now uh, that's more prevalent in this U.S. government bond market than it used to be. Do you agree with that? Well, I think the, the algorithm trading is, has a heavy influence on a day-to-day market-making business um, as far as the bigger moves concerned. I'm not so sure that's the same factor, but I think on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute, I think they have a huge influence on the Treasury market. Well, maybe that gets into my next question, and Tom, maybe I just need a little education. I'm curious, is there any idea, is there any way to know how much money or how many orders does it take to actually cause a, a, a decent shift in price? No, I think, you know, your biggest example would have been the day after the election, um, that's when algorithm trading uh, suffers because there's there's business that's happening um, on a large scale, um, and it dwarfs what's happening on the market-making side of things, and uh, markets tend to reprice in those environments. So I, I think it has to do with what the fundamentals are and what the actual size of the transactions are in the marketplace. When, it, when the market's relatively quiet and orderly, algorithm trading is very successful. Um, when you start to get some information that's new to the market and positions are offsides, 
then it's a little bit of a different story, and those same machines back away from being aggressive market makers overall, and that, that leads to the bigger moves. So, Tom, uh, what do you hear from clients? Is your sense that the moves that we've been seeing over the past uh, two weeks are being driven by fund managers who are changing their allocation, or is it uh, changing, uh, or, or are the moves resulting really from this sort of market-making activity? No, I, th- I think specifically it's it's portfolio managers of trying to re- and treasuries trying to rebound balance themselves for a higher rate structure. As I said, we have uh, basically 100% priced in for a March rate hike, and after today, we basically have two full rate hikes priced in by September of this year. So what ends up happening from here is, just like everybody else, um, myself, you, we're all looking to see what's going to come out of the administration as far as fiscal stimulus is concerned. And I would argue that the next move in the market will be dependent on whether that, that fiscal stimulus comes sooner or later. Um, what happens when the market has this big of a short base waiting for lower prices, higher yields, if they don't get a strong slew of information, then they tend to cover, and that's when we start to get a little bit of rebound and a bounce in the marketplace. So I think the next trade from here, I, you know, we can expect to see a strong non-farm payroll number correlated with today's ADP number that we saw. So we should look for Friday's number to be relatively firm. Uh, obviously, the, hour, the average hourly earnings number will be uh, a key component as far as what the Fed's been watching. They, they're looking for wage growth. Wage growth will continue to pave the way for them to remove accommodation. But I still think that overall, it's really about what's going to come out of the administration, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's tax policy. Those are the things that will drive the next move, the next leg in the market. What kind of time frame are we talking about? And I'm wondering if you could tell us if your strategy, you know, what would it be if you thought they're not going to be able to get much done before the August recess or they might get one thing done before August? Yeah, it seems to me that uh, with the delay that's happened in this Obamacare repeal and replace, it's kind of put everything on the back burner. Now, if you l- listen to the Treasury Secretary, he talked about August was a time frame in which they'd be coming with some kind of tax reform. So I would imagine it's going to move into the latter half of the year, but specifically into the fall time frame before we see anything of any consequences that relates to this. Tom, what's your what's your best guess? Do you think that we're going to see a rally uh, at some point in bonds uh, as people sort of reassess the possibility for fiscal stimulus? I think that's a potential just from the standpoint that, you know, there still is a demand for yield overall. But I, I think that rally is more, it's not based on real you know, genuine demand for the long term. I think people are starting to get defensive, realizing that the Fed is in motion and will be so, um, and that some other things are happening around the world as well. I mean, you look at what's happening in the bond market. You know, we, we've been on this show multiple times in the last 10 years talking about how the bond market has carried a bid into treasuries. That bid in the bond market is starting to fade as well. So that anchor that's been helping out the treasury market um, is starting to loosen as well. So I think there's some things in here that would generate you know, expectations for higher rates to be met. Yes, of course, there could be a rally uh, in any one of these days where we could get some short covering. But I think overall, we're looking at a general trend of upward interest rates. All right. Thanks very much. Tom Tucci, he's the head of U.S. Treasury trading at CIBC World Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.